If you uh, would, would you please uh, stand for the reading of God's uh, word? We're in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, your spirit has breathed out these words, and we ask that he would breathe them afresh into us. May they land like seed into well-prepared soil, that they would grow up and yield the harvest that you desire. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Please take your seats. Wednesday, I finally did it. I finally wrote the letter that I told myself I would write for two years. It was a letter to my college pastor, my mentor, and my friend. For 10 years, he played a pivotal uh, role in my life. And my debt of gratitude to him can never be uh, repaid. And I have been wanting so to, to reach out to him and communicate with him, but I haven't seen him in 25 years. And uh, it wasn't until we got to Maryland that I actually got his contact information, but I just put it off. Why? Well, I envisioned this really uh, beautiful, eloquent letter. You know, I thought, I'll just need time to gather my thoughts to put this together. And when I'd see my post-it note, which has been laying around for two years, I'd think, there'll be a better time. A better time will come to write this letter. Now, if you knew me really well, you know, for the most part, I'm reasonably disciplined. But if you knew me really, really well, you'd see that this isn't the only area in my life that I tend to put things off. If we're faced with a task that we know that will be demanding or difficult, we often avoid it. We procrastinate, thinking that there'll be a better time. It'll be easier somehow in the future. Now, Brian Tracy's written a book about this. It's called Eat That Frog. The title just says it, doesn't it? The, the point is just sit down and tackle that unpleasant task. Yes, the first bite will be the hardest, but once you've eaten the frog, you can get on to more pleasant things. Of 
course, probably most of you didn't grow up eating whole frogs, and so you don't really have much of a taste for them. But what happens when we face a deadline that we can't put off any up longer, maybe it's a paper due at school or a reading assignment we have for work, or maybe it's something around the house that's going to cost us a whole lot more if we don't uh, tend to it. We tend to look for shortcuts, don't we? You know, the easiest possible way to get things done. Students turn to spark notes instead of uh, plowing through Moby Dick or Shakespeare. Uh, athletes, instead of spending the hours they need to in training, uh, take steroids, you know, to get that uh, edge. Reporters fabricate stories to uh, get a Pulitzer. And business people often adopt unethical or even illegal practices to make a profit. And Paul is warning Timothy here about procrastination and shortcuts when it comes to the central mission of the church, of witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ, passing it down from one generation uh, to another. Paul appeals to Timothy not to be ashamed of him in uh, prison. And reading carefully, it seems that Timothy's hesitant to come and join uh, Paul. Timothy, Paul wants him to know, must be willing to suffer as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul writes this letter to Timothy knowing that his death is impending, and he's handing the torch of the truth of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel to Timothy especially. And this letter is especially applicable to church leaders, but it actually speaks to all of us because in it is set forth an agenda for the church of Jesus Christ. It's an enduring uh, agenda, setting out what our priorities need to be. And you can summarize what this text says to us in just a few words. It's a call to a bold endurance in ministry. Paul is summoning us. Uh, to endure in ministry with, with courage. Now, we're not to seek to put off uh, the hard work of ministry or even suffering that uh, accompanies faithful ministry of the gospel. Uh, faithful ministry of the gospel is going to bring us into conflict with the values around us, both expressed at large uh, in society as well as individual people uh, we rub shoulders with. And Paul's words here uh, can be looked at around three thoughts. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, serve wholeheartedly, and be steady in the face of suffering. Be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus, serve wholeheartedly, be steady in the face of suffering. Now Paul, as he, as he begins with these words about being strong in the grace of Jesus Christ, well, these words follow closely on uh, what was just written. You know, these chapter divisions are artificial. He didn't have chapter 2 uh, written in uh, to the letter. And it's really closely connected with what Paul has written about the massive defection among leaders in Asia as Paul is in Rome. And he mentions this to say, don't get distracted or sidetracked by what other people are doing. Don't be deflected from your uh, ministry, the one that Christ has given to you. 
And for us, we just need to remember we shouldn't pay any attention to all the confusion in the broader uh, church or all the differing uh, directions or all the fads or the efforts to be cool or edgy or even in some parts of the church, well, to prove ourselves as better than anybody else. No, we need to just uh, close our eyes uh, to all of that. And that'll only be possible if Timothy and we rely on God's uh, grace. Paul has been sounding this uh, note already in the letter. Uh, he writes in verse 8, share in suffering by the power of God. In verse 12, he expresses his confidence that God is able uh, to uh, keep uh, the gospel and, it, and the fruits of the ministry in which he is engaged in. And in verse 14, he speaks of the necessity of the aid of the Holy Spirit. But here Paul is, is pointing to the inexhaustible supply of grace that's found in Christ Jesus. As we turn to Christ, he will come to us. Uh, he will impart to us the strength to endure. His life and energy will flow through us. We have but to admit our need, and like an artesian well or a mountain spring, Christ will uh, refresh us uh, with the living waters of life and impart uh, fresh courage and strength to us. Paul understood that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. It's a fundamental lesson. And I'll tell you, it took me 25 years into my ministry to actually realize the truth of this. Hard exertion, suffering, and hardship over a sustained period of time can and will expose our weaknesses, our limitations, our human resolve and energy. It'll expose that our good intentions simply are not enough. This grace that Paul writes about, he tells us elsewhere, is sufficient. It flows through human weaknesses. It seeks human weaknesses the way water uh, seeks the lowest uh, place. That's where it flows. And uh, this grace enables us to pass on the pattern of sound words from one generation uh, to the next. And that, that is more than just teaching people the truth, the, the propositional truth of the faith. The idea is it's a truth that must be embodied in life, revealed in our character, in our deeds, in the totality of how we live our lives. And Paul outlines the steps of transmission when he writes, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrusts to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, you see, is to find the faithful, teachable, available others who will teach the next generation, who they in turn will teach the generation after that. Timothy is to plan for the long haul, a multi-generational passing of the gospel on. And every church should plant its ministry uh, uh, to continue until Christ returns. Every church should think about the long term, should be thinking about being where they are and effective for Christ until he comes back. Now, these instructions have really far-ranging implications. Narrowly, Timothy is to raise up leaders to replace those who uh, have deserted in Asia. 
And Timothy doesn't have a lot of resources to do uh, that. He has the Old Testament. He has the Gospel of Mark. Probably has some of Paul's uh, letters uh, to supplement his years of being under the faithful teaching and mentoring of Paul. But uh, today we rely on seminaries and uh, we have access to vast, vast resources, both in print and online. But it's the personal investment in leaders that's often lacking. Every church needs uh, to have a leadership pipeline and uh, plan and practices in place to develop leaders for ministry, developing men and women for ministry. That's a responsibility not just of a few, it's the responsibility of the entire church community. Further, these instructions apply uh, to our homes, especially to Christian parents, because you who are parents are entrusted uh, as the primary teachers of communicating the Christian faith uh, to your children. And every parent needs to have a plan and to put in place practices, formal ones and informal ones. Formal ones uh, could include family devotions, the use of a catechism, the intentional reviewing of Sunday morning over dinner. Not to critique, not to, you know, not to roast the pastor in his sermon, uh, but, to, but to having listened uh, warmly, uh, uh, to talk about what you've taken in and how you might uh, live it out. As well as being prepared to respond to those informal moments that arise with a child to show the connection between uh, life and all the scripture teaches. If you don't know where to begin, then invite one of the elders to help you get started. Often, often people have just such a grand plan that they can't ever get around to implementing. Often less is more, but the hardest thing is getting started. Discipleship and mentoring should embrace everyone in a congregation. Older women are to mentor younger women, although it can be a challenge to find an older woman who's willing. I've met many mature older women who say, I need somebody to mentor me. Well, if you wait until you've got it all together, you will never do this. Um, then the pastor and elders simply can't do all of this. They need all of us to work together if that's going to happen throughout the church. Paul underscores both the hard work and suffering that will come with three illustrations, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And these serve to underline wholehearted service. Paul says, serve wholeheartedly this way. Soldiers expect to be cold and wet. They're exposed to the elements, to eat poor food, to lack comfort and go without sleep. They expect as they enter combat uh, to experience hardship and to suffer as they risk their lives. Soldiers have a laser beam focus if they're going uh, to get a promotion, uh, to please their commanding officer. It takes concentrated effort uh, to carry out a mission, to defeat an enemy or capture terrain. Sergeant First Class Paul Ray Smith 
uh, could have retreated, but doing so would have allowed uh, the Iraqi troops uh, to overtake the aid station that was there at the Baghdad International Airport. Instead, what he did is he grabbed a rifle uh, and an anti-tank weapon and uh, continued to fight the 100 enemy soldiers uh, that were attacking. A fellow soldier shouted to Smith, take cover, and he refused. Uh, he gave me the cutthroat uh, sign. Uh, the soldier recalled he would not uh, leave, and Smith received a severe head wound and died at his uh, post, but his efforts stopped that attack. Two years later, President Bush would award him the Congressional Medal of Honor, handing it to his 11-year-old son. Drawing on Smith's example, the Army drew up a new creed as it improved its training. It reads like this way, I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. That's laser focus. Now, it's clear enough what that means for the soldier, but just what does that mean for us? Well, we also, like a soldier, have to deny ourselves. Uh, we have to live a life of self-control and discipline. Focus for us, though, doesn't mean that we neglect all the responsibilities God has given to us, whether it's at home, in our families, or at school, or at work, in order to do uh, witness and disciple. But it does look like, well, it might look like this. So I have a friend who teaches at a university. And when his family was young, he would, uh, when he came home from work, he would, he would leave work at work. And for the hours of the evening, he was fully available to his family. And then at 9 o'clock, he would go up to the attic and he would work for three more hours to get his work uh, done. You know, he was a man uh, to this day, given 50 years of his life to the ministry of his local church, and it would be greatly impoverished without his commitment, his, his faithful disciplining of his life, of his clarity about his priorities. I have another friend who loves sports. In fact, he's an amateur uh, athlete, uh, but he disciplined his intake of ESPN in order to invest in other people. He would have preferred to watch ESPN to his heart's content. But to give himself to what Christ had called him to do, he chose to limit uh, his hobby, his entertainment. About athletes, Paul writes this. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, in Paul's day, if you won a competition, you did not get a trophy or a medal or a cash prize. No, you got a perishable wreath that was an expression of the glory of having won. And the professional Greek and Roman athlete uh, was required by the rules to train for 10 uh, months. No athlete in the ancient world would do what a couple did in a London marathon. They hired a cab to help them uh, cut down on their time. You see, it's 
just the athlete lives for the challenge, for the, for the opportunity to compete and the glory of obtaining uh, uh, a victory. And you, it's all too easy for some people to imagine because now they're Christians. Well, that it really doesn't matter how they live because after all, uh, their, their relationship uh, with Christ and eternity has been secured. And so they can just, now that that's settled, they can kind of just coast. And Paul would view that attitude, uh, he, he would not smile in that attitude. You know, it's easy to become lazy as you go on in the Christian life. You don't quit training just because the coach asks you to get uncomfortable because he pushes you to do some things you otherwise would not want to do. The farmer. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So unlike the soldier or the athlete, the farmer's life, well, it's devoid of excitement, of glamour, uh, of danger or applause. It's, it's pretty monotonous, farming. And uh, I had the opportunity before coming here to spend a couple of years in, the, in South Dakota. And more than half, maybe three quarters of the congregation, they were all uh, the children of farmers. And I can tell you one thing they all understood, hard work. In fact, it was hard to get them to stop doing hard work. It's just ingrained in them uh, to work all the time, every day. And uh, the farmer uh, is hardworking, and Paul, uh, well, he emphasizes this about his own ministry. In many, many places in his letters, he mentions that he's worked harder than all the other apostles, and that he expects Timothy uh, to work uh, also equally hard. Now, the, the Church of Jesus Christ, um, it, it uh, receives the baton of the apostles' teaching and ministry, and it's going to involve hard work. The church moves forward on not just the spiritual resources, but on the hard work of the people who make it up. I don't just mean the pastor and other staff. I don't just mean the officers. No, I mean the entire congregation is responsible for the work of ministry. Together, the faithful church will work hard, and there's a prospect of a reward set out here, of sharing in the crops. Now, well may be that Timothy heard that as the church owes you financial support as you carry out your ministry. But as I think of this passage, my mind is drawn to the images of harvest in the New Testament, and they're principally two. One is the growth in Christ-likeness, the development of lives that are set apart, that are holy. And the other is, is that people will come to Christ. When a church is faithful in sharing the gospel which is the very power of God, there will be some who are called through that announcement of the gospel. And that requires hard work. 
just as much as it depends on God's activity. Just as a farmer uh, plows and plants and depends on God to send sunshine and rain, and so we do. We work and God uh, works. And it takes, well, it's hard work to examine your life and to see those places where you're still not Christ-like and to do something about it, to deny yourself, to uh, put in place disciplines and accountability and have somebody look somebody in the eye and say, please ask me about this. It's hard work and it's not comfortable always if somebody takes you seriously and actually does that. And it takes sacrifice and hard work to build relationships, to build friendships uh, with people who are uh, uh, far from God. It takes significant commitment of time to do that. But those friendships are really the arena, the sphere in which it becomes possible uh, uh, to connect that person's life with the good news of the gospel. It's relational work is hard to get to know someone, uh, to love them. And when they come to Christ, the work doesn't end. You have to continue to pour yourself into them, to invest time and energy to help them understand what it means uh, to follow Christ. Now, we are anticipating uh, calling uh, a new pastor. And I just want to take as an aside to say something. Most of the pastors I know work hard. Nobody works under 50 hours a week who's doing their work as a pastor. It just doesn't happen. It just can't be done. And it's not unusual uh, to work 60 plus hours when it's an especially uh, busy time in the life of the church and when they're pressing crises in people's lives. But no pastor can do it all. And so I often tell People, I don't know if I've said this to you or not, but my favorite words in the Gospels are these. They come from John. I am not the Christ. You need to say it. I am not the Christ. That's what you need to remember about your next pastor. He will not be the Messiah. He cannot do it all. When he arrives, it will not all just happen. The kingdom will not be ushered in. He will need you (laughs) to continue uh, to work by his side. And then Paul instructs Timothy to reflect on these things. Timothy, you're to think about these things. You're to ponder these things and reflect on them. And God will open up to you the meaning of these things. God will reveal to you by his spirit the application of these pictures. So for some of you, that may be that you just need to keep doing what you've been doing. You are are right where you need to be, and you are doing what Christ uh, desires of you to do. Or it may be that you need to refocus. You need to take a hard look at your priorities, how you're really using your time, how you're really uh, using uh, your resources. Maybe you need to get out of your comfort zone and out into the harvest field, which will not be comfortable for most of you. It's very comfortable being in here for most of us, but it's not as comfortable out there where people uh, don't think like we do, don't use all the words that we might use uh, in the same uh, way. And that may be that you're going to have to scale back on entertainment, which is just, it just saturates uh, our lives. Um, ask God to show you, and he will. 
Now, we should all expect ministry to be hard work because it's going to involve a long-term commitment. And it will bring a rich harvest, but we also should expect to suffer. And Paul says we should be steady in the face of suffering. He begins by invoking Jesus' suffering. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Well, you know what led up to his death, right? Years of suffering. And all uh, the misery and, and profound suffering involved in the cross. And then Paul brings up his own uh, suffering. He says, I'm bound with chains like a common criminal. And then he turns the phrase and says, but the word of God is not chained. Paul is absolutely confident that uh, the gospel and uh, the mission of the church will advance. This is a man who's about to be put to death by Rome. He's quite convinced his weeks are uh, numbered. He's completely confident that in spite of the persecution of Rome, that the church will advance. Friends, the advancement of the gospel does not depend on the state of American culture. It doesn't depend on whether America embraces Christian values. The health and vigor of the church in America does not depend on Christian values being embraced by the government. Held up high in the public square, it does not. The gospel advanced through the Roman Empire uh, uh, being totally opposed on every score in that matter. The gospel has advanced in China beyond all imagination of those who left. It doesn't enjoy some special place in the public life of China. It never has, and it may very never uh, well. The word of God is not chained, and we should not chain our hopes to some kind of victory in the public square. Our faithfulness should not be predicated on that, dear friends. Then uh, Paul brings up this faithful, trustworthy saying. These are words that probably were widely in circulation in the early uh, church, and they're both encouraging and sobering. They're encouraging. It's Paul's way of saying, endure, hang in there. Don't give up. He says, if you do, if you endure, you'll reign with Christ. That's really an amazing thing. I don't know if I really understand entirely what that means, that we're going to reign with Christ. It's something, though, it must be something so glorious. Something so glorious. But we're also warned that if we deny him, he will deny us. Those are sobering words. If you won't be identified with Jesus Christ, not not here, but out there, then he will deny you. The last words, well, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, raises two possibilities. One is God's going to be faithful, of course, to his purposes and plan. But there's the, if we are faithless. And it holds out the hope that in spite of our faithlessness, and none of us are fully faithful, that we will receive forgiveness. But it is an invitation to be presumptive. 
God doesn't owe us forgiveness for our uh, failings. What kind of suffering will we endure? Must we endure? Well, it's very unlikely to take the form it does in many places around the world of an angry uh, mob burning down your home, of being uh, beaten to death on the streets, or arrested by the secret police. Now, the primary suffering that's going to come to us is the suffering that comes by being different, by standing out, by being unlike the people in our day. And sadly, sometimes it means even being different than the people we sit in church with. You see, when you challenge the values, the assumptions, the goals uh, in society, and our society says that you should live for pleasure and comfort, and the highest possible thing you can do with your life, well, is to realize yourself. You know, you're self-realized, and your life will be full when you do that. You see, our great temptation is this. It's to become chameleons. It's to blend in. It's, it's not to stand. I don't mean to be, you know, that we're going to be combative or ugly or just try uh, to rub people the wrong way. But there just is a tendency uh, within us, a very human tendency, to want to fit into whatever situation we are, not to stand uh, out. My, my daughter, one of them, uh, actually uh, both of the girls spent a lot of time when they were young in South Carolina. It wasn't very long until uh, our, our daughter, who was three, learned to speak South Carolina. <laughs> and and when, we, when we moved further, uh, further south into Atlanta, which is much more uh, cosmopolitan, she lost her southern accent. You know, it's just the pressure uh, to, to fit in, isn't it? You see, to order our lives this way, to live for Christ and the gospel is going to cost us something. People aren't going to think as well of us. There are people who are not going to invite you uh, to participate in things. You may lose a promotion even. It means as a church that we don't apologize for Christianity. We don't, we don't apologize for the things in it that are really countercultural and they're hard for people to hear. It's not that there's a virtue in saying it in the most offensive way possible. But we don't back down from being clear that it's Christ, only Christ, by which people can be saved. And it also means this, because, you see, the church is not just an organism, the living body of Christ. It's also an institution, and there is no institution that enjoys respect in America today. Not a single one enjoys trust. And it means people are going to look at you and church with eyes of distrust. Well, is it worth it? Is it worth it to pay this kind of cost, to work uh, this hard? Is it, is it really worth it? Well, the glory of reigning with Christ the glory of carrying out our uh, mission and receiving the words good and well done from our commander. The, the glory of reaping the harvest and rejoicing with the angels when people come out of darkness into light.
1989, there was a film entitled Glory. And it dramatizes the true story of the first black regiment in the North during the Civil War. The 54th Regiment from Massachusetts was a ragtag company of inexperienced soldiers who volunteered to fight the oppression of their African-American kin. But these soldiers were not valued in uh, the white army, and so they were not issued uh, guns or uniforms. They weren't permitted to engage in combat. They had all non-combat uh, posts. When Colonel uh, Robert Shaw assumed command, he worked very hard to get them the place that they desired and deserved to have. And so eventually they were issued weapons and uniforms and allowed to fight. There's a scene in the film when the volunteers are enduring uh, basic training in Reedville camp. And Shaw receives an important letter from Washington, D.C. And even though it's late at night, he asks the men to be gathered immediately. These half-trained volunteers assemble in the midst of a heavy rain. They stand uh, soaking wet in the mud, and Shaw reads the letter. In accordance with President Lincoln's wishes, you men are advised that the Confederate Congress has issued a proclamation. Any Negro taken at arms against the Confederacy will immediately be returned to the state of slavery. Any Negro taken in federal uniform will summarily be put to death. And he looks up at the men, many of whom are freed or runaway slaves and cherish their freedom. And then he continues. Any white officer taken in command of a Negro troop shall be deemed as inciting servile insurrection and shall likewise be put to death. In assuming that many, if not most, will, want, will not want to continue serving, he looks up from the letter and says, full discharge will be granted in the morning to those who apply. After dismissing uh, the man, he turns to Major Forbes and he says, if you're not here in the morning, I understand. Through a stormy night, one solitary uh, uh, black volunteer walks slowly back and forth as a century. Meanwhile, Major Forbes uh, can be seen on his uh, bunk staring off into space, and Colonel Shaw is pondering what the morning will bring as he smokes a cigar. At daybreak, uh, Shaw emerges from his quarters, buttoning his uniform uh, jacket, and the trumpeter blows reveille. The flag is raised, and Major Forbes announces, Sir, formed and ready, sir. And expecting a depleted uh, regiment, Shaw uh, mumbles quietly, How many are left? Forbes looks straight ahead. He doesn't face the commander as he comes out in front of the troops. And Shaw, as he continues to walk forward, turns and sees that the entire company is at attention. No one has left. And he gazes into their faces and says, glory, hallelujah. Glory. That's what makes it worthwhile. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, you're our commander. You're the great farmer who sowed the seed of the word, and that seed has come to us. And, oh, Lord, we ask that these words that have been penned so long ago would take their place in our hearts and minds, and that you, by your Spirit, reveal all they mean for us 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.